Well, it's a privilege and a surprise to be with you this morning. I'm really grateful for the opportunity um, to be with you again. Been here a couple times and, and glad to be here again. For those of you who are looking forward to hearing from David Wilson, I'm sorry. My beard is not nearly as manly and my jokes are not nearly as racy. And, but um, I chose to preach on a passage that's uh, very nearby to what he was going to preach from 1 Kings. Um, David was planning, as you can see in your bulletin, to preach a miracle story from the life of Elisha from 2 Kings 7. And this morning I want to show us a passage from 1 Kings 17 about a miracle story in the life of Elijah. Um, so hopefully you have a Bible or a phone with a Bible app uh, and would encourage you to turn to 1 Kings 17. Elijah is best known, if you think about Elijah and you think about Elijah's miracles, he is best known for a massive, powerful public demonstration of God's might and strength at Mount Carmel in his encounter with the prophets of Baal. But this passage, 1 Kings 17, uh, is Elijah's first miracle. It's a private miracle. And rather than a big, showy display of awesome power, it is a tender, compassionate display of God's mercy. God's mercy for, for those who, who do not deserve it. And so 1 Kings 17 is the passage. I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. If you're able, from 1 Kings 17, I'll read verses 1 through 24. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishba and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. And he went and lived by the brook Kareth that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, And bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in, prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterwards make something for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. 
and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. And after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would take these words, these old and ancient and beautiful words, make them fresh to our hearts and minds. May we see Jesus in them clearly, we pray in his name. Amen. So we begin thinking about this passage. I want to invite you on an imaginary exercise, an imaginary thought experiment, thinking about the future to think about a dark and dystopian version of what it could be like for life in this church in 300 years. So instead of 2020, the year is 2320. The era of cultural Christianity that we enjoy now uh, is long gone. The era of secular humanism has come and gone. And in the 24th century, the polytheistic worldview that you kids have studied about in school in the ancient world has come back in full force and is the dominant worldview and religion of the day. And because of that, it's not only been repopularized, but it's taken on a a sinister form as it did in the ancient world again in the future. And as a monotheistic faith claiming only one God and one way of salvation, Christianity is now illegal. In fact, everything and everyone associated with Christianity is now targeted for removal. Church buildings are being leveled. Christian leaders of local churches are being removed. Many have been taken into exile across the deserts of the Southwest, put into re-education camps on the West Coast. In the year 2320, a small remnant of believers still gathers uh, in those re-education camps, still prays together, still celebrates the Lord's Supper together, but they do so 
with a lot of fear and a lot of questions. Questions like, how did we get here? Questions like, does God have the power to undo our fate? Does he have the power to free us? Personal questions like, does God really see me? Does God really know and love me? The books of First and Second Kings were written to people in just such a situation. In just such questions rattling around in their hearts and minds because they were in that kind of circumstance. We don't know who wrote First and Second Kings, but we know when and why they were written. They were written to God's people living in the desert in Babylon to answer their profound historical, theological, personal questions. These books of First and Second Kings are not academic history. They are pastoral history written to explain what has happened and why and where God's mercy and grace and power are in the midst of incredible suffering and unanswered questions. And so this morning, this morning we see this towering prophet Elijah whose miraculous ministry assured the first readers of this book that God does see them, that God does have power over all things in their lives, and that his grace for them is real. And this morning, as I mentioned earlier, it's the tender fatherly side of Elijah's prophetic ministry the tender, fatherly, compassionate, intimate, personal side of God's power that's on display as Elijah brings a demonstration of God's grace to a person who is low, of low estate. The term low is one term in the Bible that that God uses to describe someone who is undeserving or humble before God. And in this passage, it is the widow that is low. But we're also reminded throughout this uh, time reflecting on it, we ourselves too are the low, the needy, the weak. And we see God's grace come to this woman, this widow, this, this low person in two ways this morning. First, you can see God's grace come to her Uh, as pursuing grace. God has a pursuing grace for the low. We see this in the story of God sending Elijah to the woman. It's verses 8 through 16, that that passage where, where God calls Elijah to arise and go to Zarephath. The widow of Zarephath didn't fit the stereotypes of one deserving a visit from a great prophet. Uh, You may have noticed she's a Sidonian, not an Israelite. She's an outsider to the kingdom of God. As a Sidonian, she's actually from the same place that the wicked queen Jezebel is from. She is outside the kingdom, geographically, politically, religiously outside the kingdom. In the eyes of God's people reading this this story, it would be unthinkable that God would send the great prophet to a woman like that. 
Surely she does not deserve a visit from him. But notice in verse 12, too, this woman is not only a geographic outsider and a political outsider, she is clearly not a believer. Verse 12, how does she address Elijah's God? She refers to Elijah's God as your God, as the Lord your God lives, not our God. She's not sharing in the faith in Yahweh. She's attributing it as his belief system, his faith. This woman's low spiritually, culturally, politically, but she's also low materially, personally. She is poor. She is vulnerable. She is a widow. She's poor. She had the responsibility of a son that she could not take care of. She's on the brink of starvation. And because of all this, she is anxious and she is bitter. Elijah literally interrupts her as she is preparing what she believes will be the last meal for herself and her son, a meal of boiled sticks. She says in verse 12, I'm going to gather a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. By every standard imaginable, this woman was low, undeserving, and certainly unexpecting a visit from a prophet and the mercy of God. And yet it was this woman that God chose to pursue with his grace that he chose to send the prophet to. You remember the story of Jonah and another surprising visit of a prophet to to a people that were outsiders and undeserving. At the beginning of the book of Jonah, you may remember the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and says to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh. It's the same word that God gives to Elijah. Arise, go to Zarephath. And unlike Jonah... Elijah is faithful to the call. He rises up. He goes to Zarephath for God's mission of extending grace to her. Now, on the surface, God sent Elijah to the woman in order for Elijah to be fed. You notice in the passage, Elijah has, has by God's power, ceased rain to fall, and there's a famine in the land. And so on the surface of it, God is sending Elijah to the woman for food and drink. That's what Elijah expects of the encounter, for her to feed him. But actually, it was God's purpose for Elijah to feed her and her son. Verse 16 recounts that the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by the prophet Elijah. Now again, this morning, I'm here by surprise. This text, no one asked me, by the way, what I was going to preach. Um, This text is here by surprise, and yet notice the amazing providential alignment of themes. The hymn we just sang before looking at this passage, this hymn satisfied, the second verse reflects so much of the widow's experience. Turn back in your bulletin to it. Notice how these these lines reflect the widow's experience. It says, feeding on the filth around me till my strength was almost gone. 
her last meal of boiled sticks. Longed my soul for something better, only still to hunger on. And then, hallelujah, he has found me. That was the widow's experience. Hungry, desperate, longing. And God comes to her. God initiates and pursues and draws near to her, the low, the weak, the outcast, the bitter. And this is the regular pattern of how God's works throughout the scriptures. God does not initiate and come and save those who are powerful and successful and moral and deserving. God comes to the low. In Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, Jesus introduces himself and his ministry, um, picking up the scroll and reading in the temple like this, in a synagogue actually. And he picks up the scroll Um, He was in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read it. This is Luke 4, verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind. He set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's how Jesus understood his ministry, coming to those who are blind and poor and oppressed, just like this widow, just like you and me. Now, what's amazing, what's amazing is that Jesus actually following him introducing that great programmatic statement of his ministry in the verses that follow he actually says that he has come for people just like that just like he came for the widow of Zarephath Jesus ties this passage to 1 Kings 17 he says to the people gathered there in the synagogue. He says, I tell you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. God purposefully, deliberately, passed over Elijah feeding so many other people that he could have fed and ministered to and sent him specifically in his providence, in his grace, to this very town, to this very widow. And so now we live in this age, this age of Jesus' ministry that now carried on through the apostles and the church carried on to a world of people who are low and weak and needy and oppressed. And we ourselves in 2020 in Dallas may not feel weak and low and needy and oppressed. In many ways, externally, we are not. 
But all of us, without exception, all of us are spiritually low. Cut off and alienated from the promises of the gospel by our own sin and rebellion. Sin that sometimes we recognize and identify and confess. Many, many sins that we never see. And that are so deep within us that it's almost impossible to root out. And so we, we ourselves need to see ourselves as being low. This, this term low in the Bible, it's not a matter of subjective self-perception. It's a matter of objective reality. God diagnoses us as the low, as the weak, as the needy. And so while some of us may identify with this woman and her plight, some of us may not, the reality is, is that we are all in this condition And seeing our need and seeing our poverty of spirit is a gift of the Holy Spirit. In the Beatitudes, Jesus begins, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the calling for all of us, to see ourselves and understand ourselves as the low in need of God's grace, in need of the food and the drink of Jesus Christ. Now, So we see God's pursuing grace for this woman, this low woman. Then in the second half of the story, we see God's powerful grace to her. Pursuing grace at first in initiating, in feeding, and then powerful grace in the story of Elijah raising her son from death. Look at verses 19 through 22 just one more time briefly. This woman's son is ill and um, is, has died. There is no breath left in him, it says. In the beginning in verse 19, Elijah says to the woman, Give me your son. And Elijah took him from her arms and carried him up to the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn? by killing her son. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. Did you see how personal and physical and emotional the miracle is? Elijah carries the boy in his arms. He lays him on his own bed. He cries out to God with a lot of frustration as well as faith. He lays on the child. It says three times. Significant. It's as if he's transferring the life that resides within him physically to the child. The raising of the widow's son is the first time in the Bible that someone comes from death to life again. It's the first resurrection story in the Bible. And of all the mighty acts of God recorded in the Old Testament, this is arguably the most amazing. It's not just the separation of waters or the miraculous feeding of food for people in the wilderness. This is death to life. It's probably not just 
the first recorded resurrection in the Bible. It's the first resurrection in history. It's incredibly, incredibly significant. Now, miracles like this don't normally occur in redemptive history. Even in the Bible, miracles of any kind are not regular. They appear in clusters in the Bible. If you think about all that God's Word says throughout 66 books, you see the concentration of miracles in moments of specific, important, heightened moments of God's redemptive work. And so there are three primary clusters of miracles in the Bible. Number one, the exodus of God's people from Egypt. See a lot of miracles there. Number two, the ministry of Jesus in the New Testament. We're all familiar with that and the miracles there. The third is the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. This is the third primary cluster of miracles that God performs through these prophets. So why did God choose that era and those men to perform these kinds of miracles? Why did God choose to reveal his power over death then and to this woman? Well, he did it to disrupt, to surprise and disrupt the unbelief in unfaithfulness and immorality of his people in that era. God restored this son's life and established this widow's faith as a rebuke to his people who were rejecting him and as a beautiful picture of hope and power for those who were outside of the kingdom, for those who were outsiders. Last spring at our church, the choir performed a version of Mendelssohn's Elijah. Felix Mendelssohn, a composer from several hundred years ago, um, wrote the story of Elijah, put it into song and into music. And in the particular song that recounts this miracle story, Elijah and the widow sing a duet. Two people alone on the stage singing. And the widow sings mournfully. She sings these lines that reflect the passage. She says, I go mourning all the day long. I lie down and weep at night. See my affliction. Be thou the orphan's helper. Help my son. There is no breath left in him. And then Elijah picks it up and sings. Turn unto her, O Lord, my God, turn unto her. O turn in mercy, in mercy help this widow's son. For thou art gracious and full of compassion and plenteous in mercy. And then after God raises the son in the portrayal of the scene, they sing this beautiful duet and they sing together the lines, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, love him with all thine heart. And then it's personalized and they each sing, and with all my soul and with all my might, oh, blessed are they who fear him. What's happening in in Mendelssohn's Elijah there in those sung lines is a reflection that this miracle, this raising of the widow's son was the thing that brought her to faith in the living God. Notice what it says in verse 24 of the passage. It says that 
she believed. It says, the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. This woman's change, her transition, what happens to her isn't just that she is now convinced that Elijah is who he says he is. She is now convinced that God is who he says he is. He is the God of all power. He is the God of all grace. He is the God of all compassion, even for bitter, hungry, outsider women. This God is the God who pursues. This God is the God who who loves. This God is the one who gave His own Son to rescue us from sin and from death. I began this morning uh, inviting you to imagine that Christian church buildings had been destroyed in this 300 years into the future, this dystopian version of what could be for the church. But I want to conclude by inviting you to think about uh, what is probably the most dominant architectural feature in classic church architecture. Now, I get that uh, not all churches are built the same or look the same. And many churches that are built today are not built with this particular feature. But if you class, go to traditional churches in the United States and especially in Europe, what do you see along the walls? You see windows, stained glass windows, windows depicting biblical scenes, biblical verses shining into the sanctuaries. Now, what's interesting about stained glass windows is they don't really do much good in the middle of the day with a bunch of lights on in the sanctuary. It's hard to see them. It's hard to appreciate them, especially if it's cloudy outside. In order to see the brightness and the beauty of the windows, what has to happen? Well, the sun outside has to be shining and the interior of the building has to be dark. It's a metaphor, in a way, for this woman's experience. She was not able to see the reality of who Yahweh is without the darkness of her plight and her condition, combined with the brightness of God's power and God's mercy shining through Elijah, giving rescue. The year 2020, I hope for all of you, will be a good, happy year. But all of us know that years bring the unexpected. A a new year can bring not only a turn of the page in the calendar, but a new year can bring all kinds of new forms of sorrow and suffering. And the good news of God's Word is that it is especially in those places and those seasons of suffering that the brightness of God's mercy, the brightness of God's power shines the most. And so we as God's people are not afraid, ought not be afraid of experiencing difficulty, of experiencing suffering and chaos and tragedy in the way this woman experienced. We're not numb to those things, but we walk through them in confidence, 
knowing that the God of all power and the God of all grace walks with us. And He rescues us again and again and again and chiefly through His Son, Jesus Christ, the light of the world, the light which darkness, as John 1 says, which darkness cannot consume. Now, I mentioned earlier, being of low estate is not a matter of subjective self-perception. We are low. We are sinful. We are undeserving in God's sight. It is objectively true for every human being, whether they acknowledge it or not. But what's also true is that if you, like this woman, have placed your faith in the living God, the one who is the way, the truth, the life, in his son, Jesus Christ, who came fulfilling the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, raising himself from the dead, after defeating sin on the cross, if you have placed your faith in Him, the light of the world, the one who is the bread of life, if you've placed your faith in Him, you are also objectively, truly saved, counted righteous in God's sight. You may not always feel it. You may sometimes doubt it. But just like your sin, your salvation is not a matter of subjective self-perception. It is an objective reality and gift given to all who believe. And so even now, as we turn to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we celebrate it in confidence that this God has given us His Son, Jesus, and that in His broken body, in His shed blood, all who trust in Him are redeemed. All are fed and nourished in their souls. All are perfectly secure in life and in death because of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ.